Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What is a woman? Can you tell me that? Progressive women tell me that they find it difficult to reconcile their feminism with transgender rights. If the word woman no longer means woman, and it means anyone who identifies as a woman, then you are in really dangerous territory. At the end of the day, feminism is about choice and embracing the diversity of womanhood. And there's more than one way to be a woman. We're all on the same team here, you know? Whether you're trans, gender nonconforming, cis, we all have these expectations and these limits and constraints because of people's obsession with the binary and how we're all supposed to live our lives. It's The Argument. I'm Jane Koston. And this is the second episode in our three-part series on where the feminist movement goes after DOPS. Earlier this summer... Berkeley Law Professor Kiara Bridges sat in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing about the future of abortion rights. She was questioned by Senator Josh Hawley, who moved the conversation away from the right to access abortion to semantics. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. There are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, We it's, can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Now, Josh Hawley is Josh Hawley. But in the wake of the Dobbs decision, he hasn't been the only one focusing on the language we use to talk about reproductive rights. I've also heard some fellow feminists push back against language meant to include trans folks, like pregnant people or birthing person. The fear seems to be that by expanding our language, we're erasing the people feminism was originally created by and for. So when we're talking about language, we're really talking about inclusion. The relationship between feminist and trans liberation movements has always been complicated. But both were fighting for the right to bodily autonomy. So at a moment when that basic right is under attack for some, why can't we all get on the same page? My guests today are here to complicate how we think about this recent turn in feminism. Both are trans and they offer divergent perspectives of what it means to be a trans feminist at a time when the movement is reevaluating its relationship with gender and our gender binary. Dr. Jennifer Finney Boylan is a longtime contributor to Time's Opinion and wrote an essay about how abortion rights and trans rights are two sides of the same coin. Thomas Page McBee is the author of Amateur, A Reckoning with Gender, Identity, and Masculinity. Jenny, Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to see you. What I do want to do is talk about language and talk about where gendered language and language in general falls within the current feminist movement. But I want to start out with the idea of the gender binary. In the first episode of the series, my colleague Tressie McMillan-Cotton argued that whatever equality we've achieved for women within the binary is a compromise. And to achieve real feminist progress, we're going to have to break down the binary. 
Now, personally, I want to live in a society where gender is not something you need to really get into or out of. Not a genderless society, but a genderful society where you can walk into a restaurant and have toilets that can be used by anyone, regardless of how they identify, or using terms that you can address a group without being ladies or guys. <laughs> and I just would like the audience to know that I just leaned into the microphone really irritatingly <laughs> to say the word ladies. That was and the I'm Jerry really Lewis, sorry. wasn't that your... <laughs> that was my effort at a Jerry Lewis, but Lady. Um, it did not. Yeah, and it was just as irritating as it was when Jerry Lewis <laughs> did it. So I'm curious for you, Thomas, what did the gender binary mean to you when you were younger? And how do you see yourself fitting into it or not fitting into it now? Yeah, I mean, my whole life has been a a reckoning with, I guess, the way we think about the gender binary. And I was a masculine young person. And I didn't, you know, at 14 years old in 1995, have a sense of what being trans really was besides like talk shows and so on. But what I did have was feminism and I had queer feminism in particular. And so my first engagements really with thinking about the gender binary was thinking about it through, you know, Judith Butler and the idea of gender trouble. And I found myself in alignment with folks who didn't fit in one way or the other. And then ultimately, as I got older and learned more and found access to media and so on that helped me understand that being trans was an option even for me, I sort of felt like it was a very natural extension in my understanding to see, oh, you know, actually, the thing about me being masculine is that I really do connect literally with the idea of being a man. That's how I see myself. And I, I experienced what doctors call gender dysphoria. That was really real for me. And so understanding myself as a man, um, that was for me, obviously, a moment where then I transitioned. But as I did that, I didn't feel like what was happening was that I was like losing or rejecting or turning away from the history I had. I, I really felt like my project as I came into myself as a trans man was to reckon with and figure out how do I take my whole history and understanding of who I've been all along and make that make sense in this male body. But that being said, what I did experience immediately when I transitioned was how differently the world treated me in this body. And I started to see, I might not see the world this way, but uh, there's a obviously a political structure that really does. And how do I, as a man, interact now with the world that sees me this way and still hold on to the whole of myself? And I think that might be a trans experience in a certain way, but I actually think the older I get and the longer I've been on testosterone, which is now over 10 years, the more I see that Actually, for most people I know, there is some version of figuring out who you are in the world and then figuring out how do you incorporate the things that maybe you've had to leave behind because the world tells you that to be a man or to be a woman or to be who you are means rejecting other elements of who you've been in the past. So, I mean, I guess I think the gender binary is a political structure that benefits certain people uh, and harms others. And it's part of my feminism to figure out how to, to make that spectrum more apparent for everybody. That's really cool. It's not, um, so I'm 64. I think f the question of how do you keep the person you've been as part of you as time goes on is a universal question. It's not unique to transgender yeah. people. And so as a woman who had a boyhood, I, I mean, I know transgender people, so let's for, for the moment say transgender women who, who just say, you know, they were always women and you know, it's uncool to talk about the earlier part of their life as they were boys. And I, I respect that, but I don't see myself that way. I, I mean, I knew, I knew I was always supposed to be 
female. I always felt female from really from my earliest memory, just about when I was five or six. And, and yet, you know, I was socialized male and essentially treated as a boy up until the time when I came out, which was relatively late in my life. So now as a, as a grown woman, as an older woman, um, an old woman, in fact, now that I'm in my sixties, I still know that I have that past and, you know, every, everybody needs the past, even, um, even a traumatic past. Uh, you have to make peace with who you've been so that you can be one person and not two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thomas, you mentioned reading Judith Butler, and you said that part of the job is kind of figuring out how your feminism meets the politics of this moment. How are mm-hmm. you doing that right now? I went through a whole process in, you know, basically from 2011 to 2015, where when I started my transition, like a lot of people, and maybe Jenny shares this experience, I had to present a letter from my doctor that said I was really trans. I had to sort of <laughs> yes. perform a kind of version of like, what is it? What does that really mean? And all you along, had to I, perform I, your gender correctly so that someone yes. would say, you did it. Yes. Congratulations. And so it was a really challenging time in the first few years of my transition to figure out where do I fit in? Do I still fit into a feminist world when the feminists that maybe I would connect to most look at me and on face value, they think, oh, he's a guy and what's he doing in this space or or whatever it is. It was hard for me to figure out how to fit into the world in this new body. And because I was holding so many privileges all of a sudden, which were honestly really affirming everything I learned from feminism, like cis-passing white men and cis men generally have a privilege that everyone else doesn't. So for a while, I was doing, I guess, what I thought I was supposed to. I was experiencing my manhood like a lot of men experience manhood, which is that I was trying to prove my masculinity. I was trying to prove my right to exist. I was interacting with the world in a way that was increasingly, um, frankly, toxic. Uh, and that all came to a head for me in 2015 when I got into the street fight with a random guy on the street. And I just had this sort of moment where I was like, who am I? Like, who have I become? And I had to have this reckoning with what does masculinity mean? What do I mean when I say I'm a man? And how can I be a man in the world in a way that isn't about what we understand, you know, patriarchy to mean, which is like domination, the rejection of the feminine, things that, you know, ultimately are about dehumanizing men as well as dominating women. So, I, you know, for me, my feminism has become a project of expansion and of connecting and of exposure, like exposing my experience as a man in this world who is experiencing the privileges that I do experience and sort of validating that that's really real and that also doesn't, just exposing that the reality of that. Yeah, and so Thomas, you've been talking about understanding what it meant to be a man and Jenny, you've talked about making peace of who you've been and who you are. How has that impacted how you see the binary and your relationship with feminism right now? Well, it's funny. I guess I don't disagree with anything Thomas has said, and I, I hope that doesn't mean that this episode of the argument is a failure. <laughs> but I, I also experience the world in a, in a slightly different way, which is to say that in some ways I am a binary woman mm-hmm. uh, as a transgender woman. I don't see my identity as a transgender person as particularly transgressive or revolutionary, or to be honest, like really all that interesting. Mm-hmm. I have never been able to get through a whole paragraph of Judith Butler without wanting to edit that paragraph so that it's understandable. (laughs) Theory has never spoken to me. And like I said, I know a lot of people for whom that's true, 
And so my experience doesn't undo any of theirs. But what I know is that before transition, I was aware of having to perform masculinity. And I think this is true of cis men too, that manhood can really like, you know, hang by a thread. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember waking up in the morning before transition and thinking, okay, here we go again. Mm-hmm. We got to do the boy thing. <laughs> but as a woman, I guess I feel perfectly comfortable and happy in a kind of binary identity. I'm kind of the person I always wanted to be and always felt myself to be. And I think if feminism means anything, it means the freedom to be yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's different from what Thomas is talking about, but I'm hoping that there should be room for everybody. Right. Including someone as boring as I am. Right. I, I wrote <laughs> a long time ago about this, about how part of LGBT liberation was not just about the right to be very different, but also I think it was, in for me, in some ways about the right to be extremely boring. My desire in taking this journey was not to land in a kind of androgynous, um, flexible middle space. It is for a lot of people that I know. But for me, the the goal was to land in the place where I am, which is, you know, boring English teacher. <laughs> well, uh, just to clarify, I mean, I think people look at me and see me as pretty boring. <laughs> but I guess I think part of where the conversation gets derailed or lost is we need to make space and make room for people whose expressions and identities are non-binary or exist along a spectrum as its own thing. Everybody benefits from extending and expanding what the definitions of various understandings of gender mean, because who benefits from the binary? At the end of the day, the people who benefit most are the same people who are policing men for not performing their masculinity appropriately, and that's cis men too. So I think to me, it's less about how does my own identity transcend the binary, which, you know, frankly, it doesn't, except for, like many men, I have all of these qualities that are quote-unquote feminine. Like, sometimes I think this, like, focus on well, does my identity in particular fit into this disruptive model? Mm-hmm. Uh, not in any way, no disrespect to what you're saying, Jenny, but I just think it's not its not really the whole conversation because it's like all of our identities disrupt the model when we really think about it, or, or most of us do. And if not, I think it would benefit most of us to allow some disruption of these scripts. The time I notice it most clearly is, is this thing like this. So people are going to listen to this and they're going to hear your voice and they're going to hear my voice. And Mm -hmm. the voice in which I speak is not the voice that I spoke in before transition, but it's still a fairly androgynous, somewhat masculine voice. And if I, if I call somebody on the phone, if I order a pizza, I'm going to get, thank you, sir. And Mm. that, um, yeah, I know that probably shouldn't hurt my feelings, but it does hurt my feelings. And, you know, I did the thing where I took voice lessons and I learned how to speak in this passable girly voice. I'm not even sure I could do it anymore. But it was something that was up here. It was a little bit more mm-hmm. breathy. Mm-hmm. I spoke that way for like the first year post-transition. And I remember being told, you know, to be a woman, I have to end my sentences with a up voice, you know? You have to but up I had speak to in order up to... Speak in a, yeah, <laughs> and, and to, be, <laughs> to be uncertain of who I am, like I don't know. And I just couldn't do it, you know. And um, I'm so glad you didn't do it, Jenny. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm struck by in this conversation how we're talking about people trying to just live in the world and trying to function as who they are. 
Mm-hmm. Jenna, you brought up a definition of feminism, which is the freedom to be yourself. And I feel as if language is a lot of where these debates are happening. And there are people who believe that using language that could be more inclusive downplays what cis women go through. It's like this pie concept that if trans people get their needs met, then other people like cis women won't. That if you are advocating for bathrooms that are inclusive, then you won't be advocating for better maternity leave. Or if you are talking a lot about standing up for trans people in sports, that you won't be talking about sexual assault. I'm interested, Thomas, to hear from you. Why do you think our conversation is so focused on language right now? In other words, when we're bickering about language, are we actually talking about language or are we talking about something else? I think we're definitely talking about something else. But I also think it's a, <laughs> it's a super complicated issue because you kind of have to look at you know queer history and you have to look at the way trans visibility has affected the conversation. I think the biggest issue to me is there's a group of people, I hate to say their names, but the TERFs, they call themselves gender critical, um, but they are gender fundamentalists. And they're working in alignment with you know the same right-wing Christian groups who are working to ban abortion access. And so there is a sort of concentrated push from a sector of the population that seems to be centering their entire political identity around the idea of upholding a gender binary that's based on, quote-unquote, biological sex, which is not actually a real and clear thing. You know, there are secondary sex characteristics, sure, but they exist along a spectrum. Mm -hmm. But I think there's sort of the bad faith actors who are using rhetoric and language and an identity threat, which is that feeling that people get when they are in a dominant population and they feel anxious that another population's existence threatens their existence. So there's sort of a rhetorical battle happening. And I find it very distracting. And I think Mm -hmm. that this sort of pact has figured out how to tap in psychologically and through the use of social media and so on into these anxieties. And I wish and would love to leave them almost out of the conversation because I don't really see that as a feminist conversation. And then I think there's older generations of cis women who have worked tirelessly thinking about women as a political block, maybe with less understanding about uh, gender variance and so on, and who are learning in real time and thinking about this in real time and sometimes stumbling and sometimes feeling um, feeling maybe not seen or appreciated for the work they've done. And I think that's a worthy and different group to engage with and to have a conversation about. And I have a lot more empathy for people who've worked very hard to think about things and fight for things in a particular way and are now being asked to expand their definitions. And I think as a coalition, having a little bit of patience with that group probably benefits us, but I don't think we should mix in the people who are genuinely dyed in the wool, working hard in their own lives to create gender parity and who've had to sort of learn how to think beyond maybe their own very specific experiences in order to do that. I don't think we should conflate them with people who are, I think, cynically using various rhetorical strategies to try to foment a culture war. When you say turf, that's a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. I have a couple of thoughts here, and then I definitely want to hear from Jenny on this point. One, I think that there has been an effort by some to make it seem as if if you are fighting for trans women, you are inherently not fighting for cis women or just women in general. Mm-hmm. Secondly, and it, you know, it's not just Republicans and people trying to restrict or abolish access to abortion— 
People in our very own opinion pages have claimed that using language like pregnant people are erasing women, mm-hmm. which I don't think is true because I think that people understand in general that widening language means that we can talk about a lot of different things. Jenny, as someone who is a little bit older, how much of this do you think is generational? Is language a place where you find disagreement with younger people, non-binary folks? I'm, I'm quoting you, being a boring English teacher. I don't think there is such thing as being a boring <laughs> English teacher. But is this a generation gap, or what do you think is going on here? When I, when I see people objecting to the existence of transgender people, what I always wonder is what, what alternative do they have in mind? Like, what's the, what's the solution? I think what people worry about is the world feels unstable. And it's not only about gender. I think we're, we're in a place where the world feels like things are flying apart. And if gender can be malleable and unstable, the last thing that you just kind of took for granted, or that these people take for granted, mm-hmm. if gender can be malleable, then what can be counted upon. I mean, in some ways, it goes to the bigger resistance to the idea of change of any kind. You know, especially, well, it's not just older people. I think it comes back to what you were saying at the beginning, Jane, the idea that that equality is a pie and that if somebody else gets a slice, they got your your pie, they got your equality, they got your, your shot. And I think it's also that the pace of change in the world seems, I mean, is going faster and faster and faster. I mean, I remember when when we first got computers <laughs> in the 90s, you know, the, I remember buying a computer and thinking, well, well, now I have a computer and that's the computer I'm going to have for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, the idea that, that, I mean, everything has to be changed so swiftly now, I think it freaks people out so that I think gender is the one thing that if you've never thought about it and have never had to think about it, Uh, You want to continue to live in a world where you never have to think about it. I mean, there are lots of things I don't want to think about, and yet here we are. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but just to, to add briefly onto that, Jane, I think there's a mystery to life, and I think culture is catching up to the ongoing mystery yeah. of being a person. And a lot of it has to do with the rise of social media. So for me, going from reading academic theory books by myself outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and being in queer communities where we hung out in bars and talked about our thoughts and feelings, to then being in a moment where suddenly there was just a chorus of voices telling all kinds of stories, not just about gender, about race and class, and all of these things that we all experienced over the last decade of just this flow of diverse and kaleidoscopic information, I think there's a misnomer that somehow this is all just a a sort of trend. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of what's missed often in the conversation is like, nobody invented any of this. It's just that you can see it now. And that makes you reflect on yourself. Then that's good. Like, how is that a bad thing for the vast diversity of human experience to make you ask questions about your own gender identity or why gender functions the way it does in the world? To me, it's the opportunity. It's not scarcity. It's a huge opportunity to really reimagine, you know, how we all could live in a more embodied way. I think when people object to language, when people don't want to use they, for instance, to refer to a non-binary person or, or some of the other pronouns, I think what they're objecting to is the idea that using those pronouns means that they're buying into the idea 
that gender exists along a spectrum. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes I feel like a better way to make the case is just to ask people, let, let's say that you would use they, not because you're agreeing, but because it's out of common decency, it's out of politeness, it's out of kindness. Maybe that's a better argument. It's a better way to say, okay, you don't have to believe that transgender people even exist, but you call me she because, because that's my pronoun. That's my name. This podcast is supported by WISE, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. Dining in dollars? Doing business in bot. Wherever life takes you, the WISE account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast. WISE is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. Freelancing in France? No problem. Sending money back to mom? Simple. All without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by visiting wise.com slash NYT. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. I want to tie us back to a conversation about feminism, because I think that so much of this is like reactions rooted in misogyny. I also think that there's this idea, and it's something that per I find personally infuriating, which is that, you know, when you are of a particular worldview that treats trans women as evil, confused adult men uh -huh. and trans men as always confused children. You hear stories about someone who's like, oh, you know, I transitioned when I was 25. And yet that is put into a parlance in which it makes it sound as if this person was a child. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so much of this has to do with not taking other people's identity seriously or being afraid that taking someone else's identity seriously will mean that your identity is not taken seriously. And on paper, it feels as if if feminism is about, in some part, the right to be yourself and, more importantly, in some ways, the right to bodily autonomy, it feels like they should be on the same team. Jenny, I, I want to ask you, you've written about this, how you've interpreted the movement's relationship to you. Are there moments in which you felt included by feminists, excluded? What has that been like? Well, I was a feminist before. Uh, I guess I've always identified as a feminist, and I have never seen feminism as only one thing. So I, I've always been fairly comfortable as a feminist, and I felt that there's room for me. And it's funny to me that, you know, so many of the people who are opposed to transgender rights, people who would in any other context be fighting for abortion rights, because why? Because they're fighting for the right to control your own body. Being trans is in some ways just the other side of the coin of the abortion rights movement, that we are fighting for the right to 
control our own bodies. It's not a whole lot more complicated than that. And yet, for us to suddenly be seen as the enemies of people who are in that fight, I really don't understand it. It's really frustrating. Well, just to underline that too, and and tie back to something you just said, Jane, like I think also, to me, feminism is about marginalized gender identities broadly Mm -hmm. and the ways in which specifically femininity is punished by patriarchy in our culture. And that happens across all kinds of bodies. But the conversation about us, Mm. I feel like it's a lot about cis culture telling on itself. But to your point, like if you look at a trans man and you see, quote unquote, a woman, right? And then your way of relating to that person is to say, you don't know who you are. You don't know what's right for your body. You need to be protected. You're an innocent. That's how you see women. And if you look at trans women and you say, you know, that's not really a woman, that's a man. And the way I see men are as predators who I need to protect women from. And that is white feminism. And that is not even white feminism. That is the way white women have been treated in American culture anyway for a really long time. So I just think critical thought about where, where do these narratives even come from and how does the way you potentially, or the person who's saying these sort of things, how does that reflect back on how they see themselves? Because I think when I have the capacity for empathy with these people, I think, wow, like how hateful and how disempowered the way you see yourself. Right. Thomas, how has your relationship with feminism shifted after the Dobbs decision? And I'm just curious as to when you're thinking about your own feminism, was there a point where you felt like, to be more masculine, you needed to be less of a feminist? I don't know if I ever thought to myself, I'm less of a feminist now. I think I mm-hmm. always felt like I was being a feminist. I There was a period early in my transition in the first few years where I was calling myself a feminist, but I really wasn't acting like one. Um, I just wasn't sure where I fit in. And so I thought my job was to, yeah, to just be a cis-passing trans man. So I think for me, like, I... I really had to reorient myself and realize that being a man uh, who's also a feminist and who's also trans was a different sort of orientation to this very large and diverse political group, which is feminism. Regarding Dobbs in particular, I mean, it's very much a trans fight as much as it is a, I don't know, cis woman's fight. So this is not like some super separate issue that it's like we're trying to wedge ourselves into a conversation. These are our issues as much as they are anybody else's. And in fact, we make that coalition broader. So why wouldn't you want us to be part of that conversation? Jenny, how do you want to be included in feminism now, post-Dobbs, or even just kind of as a boring English teacher? There's a lot of work to do, and Dobbs, I think, woke up a lot of people. But if there's any good to come out of it, it's that I think it's made us realize that we have a big agenda. And I don't think it should be controversial that I should be part of that movement. I'm not even sure. I, it's hard for me, Jane, even to make a good argument out of, about it because it would mean having to understand reasons why I would be excluded from feminism in the first place. I mean, I've been on this side of the gender binary now for almost 25 years. There are people who would think that a baby girl born one day ago has more right to be female than I do. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just, what we need to do is to create a future in which everybody is free to be the person that their heart demands. What we need to do is to stop having these fights 
within the ranks of feminism and return to to the very real threats to all of us, to men and women. So what it means it, to me is that I'm in body and soul for all the work that has to be done. Jenny, Thomas, thank you both so much for joining me. It was really great. It was great to be here. Thanks. Dr. Jennifer Finney Boyland is a writer, a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard, and the Anna Quinlan Writer-in-Residence at Barnard College. She's also a longtime contributor to Times Opinion. Thomas Page McBee was the first trans man to box in Madison Square Garden and the author of the memoirs Amateur and Man Alive. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Vishaka Durba, and Derek Arthur. Edited by Alison Brzezik and Annabelle Bacon with original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker, and mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Mary Marge Locker, Phoebe Lett, and Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta, with editorial support from Christina Samuelewski. son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.